Welcome to the Yours in Marketing podcast. On this episode, we interview Joel Kletke, who is the founder of Business Casual Copywriting and Case Study Buddy. Now, Joel was asked to come on the show because he actually is responsible for helping us at Directive Consulting with our copy on the on the new website design that we did. And it really became very apparent very quickly that this guy knows what he's talking about. He knows what kind of copy converts and really speaks to people. He has this simple but yet really elegant way of connecting with people on a human level that comes through even on website copy. And it's really interesting to hear his thoughts about how B2B leaders, how websites in general can make their copy more engaging, more interesting, and ultimately how you can convert them into better and more qualified and quantified customers. So it's really effective for people that are listening out there that maybe your website copy is not exactly where you want it to be. Maybe you're using a little kind of robotic language. You're not thinking about the user experience in terms of the messaging as much. This is going to be a really effective use of your time to listen to this interview because Joel is the best at what he does. That's why we hired him. So he is doing masterful work out there, also working on case study buddy, building case studies for all kinds of businesses. Case studies are really, really effective and powerful tool to help with your sales and also just reinforce your current clientele on what you're capable of doing. So check those things out. Without further ado, let's hop into the interview with Joel Kletke. Today's guest, we have Joel Kletke on with us. Hi, Joel. How are you doing? Doing good. Staying warm. That's the important thing. <laughs> so Joel is a copywriter extraordinaire. He is solely responsible basically for our copy on our website yep. we just discussed. And he has been doing some masterful things with copywriting for a long time. He also has a deep background in SEO and digital marketing in general. So we are really thrilled to have him on today. And we're going to ask him some hard-hitting questions. <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to start there, Joel, because I have a tough one lined up first. And, you know, this comes from the heart. How did you become the best-looking man in the world? Oh, man. Uh, aside from genetics and, you know, DNA and just God's blessing. <laughs> no, uh, that's, that's a funny story. So I, I was working at an agency. Uh, that's where I got my start in the industry. I, I graduated entrepreneurship degree, no clue about where I wanted to be, just knew the type of place I wanted to be. And so when I got a chance to go to SEO, which I'd never heard about before in my life, I didn't even know it was a thing, went in-house to, to this agency and uh, suddenly SEO was my job. And I found, you know, in Canada, things kind of lag behind in terms of understanding and people really seeing the the opportunity and things or, or being willing to invest in it. And so we were doing great work at the agency and I loved my time there. But one of the things that we'd come up against is getting people to see the practical value. And mm. so I came up with this idea, you know, I, I was kind of on GoDaddy. I was looking around at domains that were available and I saw bestlookingmanintheworld.com was available. I thought, <laughs> no way. How can this be available? And so I, I scooped it up and, and I kind of thought, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to see if I can. I'm going to put my SEO skills to the test, see if I can rank my photo to be the first thing. It was like the dream, right? I wanted to be the best looking man in the world according to Google. So I did the SEO <laughs> thing and it worked. And I, I stayed and my picture was number one for like years. It's just um, you and like the Dos <laughs> guy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I mean, you know, Google, the, the ultimate source of truth, you know, they, they highly vetted it. They really, uh, you know, there's symmetry analysis, yep. all of that. But what it turned into, not only did it become a really cool thing and an easy way to show clients the potential, but eventually I got a TEDx talk out of it, which was pretty neat too, a pretty neat kind of side opportunity. So yeah, it was just one of those quirky things, one of those like knee jerk things you do in an afternoon that became for a while a, a big part of my story and, and a big part of my career. So how did you actually turn that into a TED talk? So, right, you buy this domain. Uh, it's a really cool just talking point of this is the power behind search. Here's why it can be valuable to you. And then you then though, I love this because this is, I think it's something I've noticed in successful people, right? Is they take a moment of hilariousness, a joke of luck and they spin it into something that has multiplicative compounding effects for the rest of their career. So how were you able to take that domain, right? And then turn that into a TED talk. Like walk us through that experience. It's a mix of like, I did the thing that I did that afternoon, you know, and, and put the effort in and got it ranking, but it became this talking point. And so one of the philosophies I've tried to carry throughout my career is to never underestimate the power of a single connection. Cause you just never know, like all my biggest opportunities, best clients, they've all come out of a relationship. Somewhere I made a connection with someone, usually we couldn't do anything for each other at the time. And it turned into something huge years later, you plant seeds, and you never know what's going to grow. And so yeah. I got asked uh, by a friend of mine, he had a sister, uh, and she was planning this big trip. She was a social studies teacher here in Canada, taught at a girls school, and she was tired of the kids having nothing but bad news to share in their current events part of their class. And so she decided she was going to do this multi-country tour to go find good news. And a friend of mine asked, hey, would you sit down with her? I know you're into this SEO stuff. I know you did this best looking man in the world thing. Could you give her some pointers on, on getting visibility on it? I said, sure, why not? So we sat down at this stupid little Irish pub near my house and, and I gave her some pointers and we became friends through that. And so Years later, after she'd done that trip, she obviously got some media attention for it. She got to do a TEDx talk. And then when it came time to put names forward for people who might be good to do that, she floated my name out there and used that example of the best looking man in the world as this kind of example of the power of the web and the power of perception and things more from there. No, I love it. And I think the last kind of follow up around that, Joel, is you said, you know, a lot of the relationships you got earned you some of your largest clients now. With that in mind, I recognize that HubSpot and Deputy are two of the largest clients you've worked with. Did those come from relationships as well? Where that came from is uh, Matt Barbie and I had had known of each other. We'd kind of floated around SEO circles. And for the audience, guys, was doing. Uh, Matt um, is and, director of growth at HubSpot. Just a little background and runs a thing called Traffic Think Tank. Sorry, Joel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but at the time, he wasn't director okay. of growth at HubSpot. He was just a consultant doing his own mm. thing. And so I saw the work he was doing. He saw the work I was doing. And we both appreciated the value that was coming forward. And I was in SEO at the time. So like I said, we we had nothing, you know, there's no way I could have helped him. And at the time, there wasn't really anything he could have done for me, but we just got on well. And then when he did go in-house with HubSpot, I was the name that came to mind when they needed someone to help them out with conversion stuff and when they're going through this massive overhaul of their site. So that's where that came from. And, you know, deputy, I think they're a big client as well. That came through our referral as well. I think I can tie that one back to Barbie too. I think he was uh, doing some work alongside them, some consulting with them. 
but it's not just that, you know, like WP Engine, when I worked with them, that came through a friend of mine, John Henry Shirk, who before that was an SEO consultant with Sear and went on to be in-house other places. So you just never know where good people will wind up. And it's a mistake to be so short-sighted to only try to, you know, network or make friends with people you think can help you. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's better to just go out there and make friends and be genuine and be interested and try to be interesting. And for me, at least that's paid dividends in my career. So that's, that's like word of mouth. So you're talking to people, you're meeting people in real life. They later have an impact on you. But online, if you were to recommend to B2B leaders, the best place to go to make these meaningful connections online, where would you direct them? That's a good question because the landscape is like shifting like crazy. In, in the early days, you know, like so much of my network, I can tie back to Twitter because in its heyday before it became this nauseating, crazy political landscape of outrage and everything's horrible. It was a really good place to meet people. These days, I make a lot of great connections in smaller, intentional communities. So two places I would say B2B leaders should look is surprisingly enough, Facebook. Uh, There's a group for everything, every niche, every specialty. You know, some groups are better than others, but I make great connections there. And then kind of a rising trend. You know, if you look at we mentioned traffic think tank earlier, but if you look at what they've done, Nick Eubanks and Matthew Barbie and Ian, they've built this really curated community of people who want to be there and want to have these discussions. And it's kind of focused enough that it's devoid of this, this other distracting nonsense. So Slack groups and intentional small communities, I'd say are really becoming an important source of networking and communication now as well. Yeah, one of the things, Joel, you talk about a lot too, though, is how much you're always impressed, I think, with LinkedIn from the posts. Like, instead of posting on your own mm. blog now, the power of LinkedIn. I mean, maybe speak to that too from a sense of like people who might be trying to start their own thing or maybe who are leaders in-house or yeah, agencies. Like, how do you see the power of LinkedIn from a publishing, like a post perspective? Because I, I know you're pretty active on there and you do really well. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. So, People often would publish on, say, Medium, right? Because Medium yep. had the audience and you're just leeching off of that. And I think LinkedIn, if you look at the trajectory of what they've done over the past few years, they've gone from this like hated, redheaded stepchild of a social network to being this incredibly active place. And it's popular to dump on LinkedIn because, yeah, there's a lot of dumb content on there. <laughs> but my approach has simply been, I don't really blog on my own site that often anymore. I don't really have the time, but... I'll go fire off an update on LinkedIn and my only focus, my only focus is to communicate something actionable in 3,000 characters or less, I think is is their limit there. And my strategy is simply, I'll, I'll find a core idea, a fast tip, I'll communicate it there in its entirety. There's no link to download. There's no go to this link. It's just, here's something useful, like in this ocean yep. of like weird videos and like, I got fired and then I did this and things, you know, like all these dumb stories, just be useful. Put something other than someone goes, Hey, I, I could take that and apply it. And I've gotten some solid traction. I don't have the share numbers of some of the gurus, but I get a lot of good inquiries just trying to be genuinely helpful. No holds barred in their character limit or less. Well, what's the key difference between if you're writing a post or just a comment on LinkedIn versus a Facebook group or maybe you're writing an article or preparing a presentation, like a speech, what's the difference in your copywriting process for those three different things? So social media, a blog post, or a presentation? 
I mean, with LinkedIn, you know, you have to have some copy chops because you're competing with a lot of noise. You've got to grab. So your first few sentences, you know, they're incredibly important. You're, you're interrupting because people aren't necessarily looking for what you're sharing until they become a follower. So, you know, on LinkedIn, again, it's bite-sized. It's frequent. At my peak, I was posting every day, something small, something often. And then, you know, when people follow up, just always taking the time to say thanks and try to foster a relationship that way. When I'm putting together, say, a talk or a presentation, and anyone who's, if you haven't seen me give a talk at a conference or see me give a presentation, you know, I'm kind of known for having really dense, <laughs> really dense talks. I, I kind of like try to compress the ocean into a raindrop. But the goal there is, you know, I want everyone in the audience, everyone who's listening in to be able to take something away, regardless of their niche, their company size, their budget. There has to be something actionable in there for them that makes them sit up and go, hey, I can use that. And so my talks can be really dense. And then when it comes to, you know, some of these communities, I think the big thing is just, yeah, you know, you're going to focus on the work and yeah, it's similar to LinkedIn and that you want to just be genuinely helpful first and not constantly pitching. But there, I think the goal is just be real. So have real conversations. If the conversation deviates a bit away from shop talk, that's okay too. But focus just on getting to know the people in the group and and I guess being known. So the last thing I'll say on this is like I deliberately seek out groups where I'm the bell of the ball. And what I mean by that is like there are maybe a handful of other copywriters in all of Traffic Think Tank. And so when I open my mouth and share something, I own the floor. I'm not competing with 20 other writers all trying to pitch the same group. And I'm not even really pitching, but I stand out because I'm not, you know, I don't fit the mold of everybody else that's in there. I think one of the important parts, Joel, and this is something like, like data has screwed us up so bad. Like it really has. And, and what I mean by that is as marketers, we literally decide that we're like marketing God and that we can put value on anything and it's only valuable if we can directly correlate it to revenue, right? Like I'm only going to talk to my exact target market. You're like, no, no, no. You should talk to anybody and love on them, appreciate them, honor them, respect them, help them, educate them. And you'd be amazed what can happen down the road. So like, how do you fight? Cause by the way, working with Joel, he's freakishly intelligent and uses a ton of freaking data to get to his assumptions with his copy. And I was very, very impressed with that and just the experience of working with Joel. But as someone who's that data-driven, how do you simultaneously ignore the data to build relationships? Like, what's that process like for you? A shift that has to happen, and I don't know if it ever will, is recognizing that data is just clues. Data is not the whole story. You, you cannot compress everything on the planet into data, at least not in a way that we could ever hope to understand it. And I think one of the things that being specific to copy and conversion has taught me is that there's always room to be surprised and there's always room for the human factor. There are things, you know, we want hard answers from data. We want to know always exactly what worked, why it worked. And there's some things when it comes to my role in particular, we can never know the why. We can ask people, we can try to get them to explain, but for some things we, you know, some tests will just never really understand why one thing went the way it did or not. But when it comes to relationships too, I think one of the things I've especially been learning as I get older and, and especially now with a little guy, you know, our son is I'm starting to see again, like, 
it kind of comes back to that thing I mentioned earlier. You, you just can't underestimate the power of relationships because where we try to limit ourselves to data and conjecture and we want everything to be predictable, there's no way I could have predicted at the moment that I decided to take a Thursday night to go to a bar to teach someone's sister about SEO that one day she would be the person who opened up TEDx to me and by doing that, speaking in general. There's just this amazing, wonderful wild card factor of life where you can't track potential in data, at least not data alone. You had this presentation three years ago where you presented to a bunch of six and nine-year-olds, right, about the power of saying yeah. yes. It, is that like a principle you live life by? Like, because I, like, I saw that whole presentation, right? I went through it. All, I was like, this is awesome, right? You're teaching like these kids essentially about life to a certain extent. And like your career doesn't have to look like college, job, die, right? Like it could be something different. Like, what are you saying yeah. yes to in 2019? Like as that guy, right, who started your whole career saying yes to stuff, what are you saying yes to this year? Like what's your focus going to be? You know, what's funny is the big thing that is happening for me this year is saying yes to saying no. Um, I've gotten to the point where, you know, I've said yes to so much and I've been so agreeable. And now I have to learn to turn things away and learn to focus. And so I think if, if I want to rephrase that a bit, this year I'm saying yes to focus and I'm saying yes to letting go of the fear. We, you know, we talked earlier, you were mentioning the shift in the landscape of like the lead volume and, and the things that are happening in your business, right? And, and there's this uncomfortableness that comes when even when you're closing deals and you're getting great work to go, say, from this large number of leads to this smaller number of leads, there's some discomfort there. And I think for me, though, that's what I'm saying yes to. I'm saying yes to being uncomfortable. I'm saying yes to ruthless focus. I'm saying yes to some shifts in my own mindset. I think for myself, you know, I, I hold a lot of limiting beliefs. There, there's things that even if I didn't realize it, there are things that I always, I would put a ceiling on myself. And this year, I guess it's, I'm saying yes to being focused and yes to being uncomfortable with being focused and uncomfortable with going into new territory and places I've, I've never been before. Because for example, like the things that are happening with case study, they're presenting challenges I've never had to deal with before, navigate. There are mornings where I wake up and go, this is all really exciting and I want to shut it down. Yep, but I have to yep, yep. you know, remind myself that I can do this and and I can navigate this. And you know, why not me? Why yep. can't I be the guy who's able to do that stuff? You're talking about focus, but then we also know that you're the kind of person that has a lot of different projects going on yep, yep. at the same time, right? So how do you prioritize mm -hmm. that? How do you know what you're supposed to, what's really going to drive the most value? What's worth working on right now as opposed to tomorrow? And is like the KPI revenue or like what's that KPI to you? Do you know what I mean? Like because value, right, is going to be an intrinsic thing that's based on your principles and your values, right? So is value to you revenue? What is that value? Because it's okay if it is, right? Or is it something else? You know, it's a tightrope because no matter how much I want to be like free spirit and like just do what makes you happy and all the motivational quotes with hashtags, you have to make money. There's freedom that comes with your ability to generate revenue and it's hard to say no to. And I think that's part of what I got caught in for years is I focused explicitly on revenue and what's going to make me the most in the shortest time. And 
now, you know, I'd be lying if I said revenue is not part of it. I think a big part of the reason that I'm trying to take the back half of this year and focus exclusively on case studies because I see a huge revenue opportunity there. But in the same breath, I think for me right now, one of the things that happens, and I'm going to say when you work by yourself or for yourself, but I think it happens to everybody if, if I'm honest and, and, and you can confirm or deny, but it's easy to get complacent. And when you're in school, you're always learning something. You're always being stretched. When you're in business, unless you give yourself those opportunities to be stretched, or embrace when that happens, it's really easy to get just kind of in a boring pattern of doing the same thing all the time. And so now part of how I evaluate opportunities is where where am I going to grow? And where am I going to be challenged? And where is my next helpful skill going to come from? Because I don't want to just do the same work I was doing in 2015 today. I, I want to progress. I want to feel like I'm moving towards something, even if that something is just self-betterment. And so I think that's factoring more and more into my decisions today too. A lot of us have gone through this where we'll start something and then we've seen other opportunity, right? And we want to kind of capitalize on that. And we keep seeing new opportunities come up all the time, new things we want to try. How do you know when to draw the line? How do you know <laughs> when it's not worth it to keep trying to add on to it and just stick with what you have or to abandon it altogether? I mean, you talked about there's a, it's a fine line, but how do you know what the line is with something like that? To be brutally honest, that's the hard lesson I'm learning right now is I have been the guy who, oh, there's a shiny object over here. I'll, I'll do some <laughs> of that and I'll do some of this and, and a little bit of everything. And, you know, so at one point, if, if I was to rattle off at the end of last year, all the things I thought that I could be actively involved in and not want to like sleep for a decade, like I was doing... I was look, working on business casual. I was working on launching an audit service. I was working on launching a revamp of something called the pit. So this, you know, landing page free assessment thing. I was working on case study buddy. I was working on speaking ideas. It was too much, right? And I think that's one of the things I've been historically terrible at in my career is knowing where the line is. And so, you know, when we talk about what are you saying yes to this year, that's why I say ruthless focus. Like, I've taken this big nebulous list of like literally six different things I thought I had energy and focus to do, had to learn the hard lesson that no, I'm not superhuman. There's a lot I can do. There's a lot that I can be really capable with, but I can't be excellent at anything if I'm just okay at 9,000 different things. I think I've been lucky enough to not go horribly down that trail. Like I have one side project I do. The big thing, I think, and this is also, you know, for the listeners, everyone is, I think our human nature incredibly underestimates how difficult something is not to start, but to maintain, grow, or push past. And we devalue the amount of time it actually took to get where we're at currently and think it was a hell of a lot easier than it actually was. It's kind of eerie. It's almost like, I don't know if I ever published this somewhere and you found it. But again, one of the philosophies that I have in business, and I learned it early, but just it's taken a lot of time to take root and, and I keep coming back to it is with the sentence that I come back to all the time is everything is harder than you think it will be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, yep. like yep. Uh, because early in my career, right, when I just started freelance writing and I, I thought to myself, Hey, you know what? What if I subcontracted this to 
you know, I had a 10 different writers all doing blogs and, and you make all these assumptions, right? Like, oh, of course, everyone's going to have the same level of quality. Everyone's going to have the same <laughs> yeah. process as I do. Everyone's going to care about deadlines. And then you get into it. You're like, this is a thousand times harder than I thought it will be. And none of my assumptions were true. And I keep that front of mind now. Everything that sounds simple is harder than you think it'll be. And that's okay as long as you don't quit when, when it gets hard, because it will. Yeah, don't be shocked, right? Like, don't become, like, unaware and just be completely shocked by it. And, I, yeah, no, that's a that's a huge point. And I, I think, Joel, I have another pretty hard-hitting question here. Is it hard being a Calgary Flames fan? Like, what's that like? <laughs> this year, it's real easy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're second in the league, I think. So Is, is this um, the year? Either. That's the question. Flames year? I'll start by saying this is the best Flames team I think I've watched in my lifetime. That being said, I think they're they're still a year or two away. I think, you know, we've got a three-year window. If they make it all the way this year, I'll eat eat my words. But I think they're close. I think they're they're a couple moves away from from being there. It's been 30 years. So <laughs> I mean it's been it's been a long time coming. So uh, we we wish you all the best of luck. We don't want to no, no jinxing here. Yeah, we don't yeah. want to jinx you, but, you know, best of luck. <laughs> Why do marketing teams just devalue copy? Where did this whole BS thing of people don't read? Like, where did this come from? It just blows my mind that, like, copy is so devalued. Even myself, I think I accidentally devalue it. Yet, I'm, like, one of its biggest proponents, entirely believe in it, paid you, like, Joel's the man, okay? Like, but Joel's also not like the cheap guy in the space. Like, Joel's worth every buck. Like, I believe in copy, but why is that such a like? Because you go back, right? Ogilvy copy, like that was his bread and butter, right? Like that was what advertising was. It was copywriting. Like you got into copywriting, and then at some point, we just forgot. Like maybe walk uh, the audience maybe through what what you think happened and like where we're at today and why it's devalued when it's such an important part. I think there's a lot of reasons, and this is something that I've had to think a lot about, and especially in the early days of my career, I came up against it more. I think the first reason is that on some level, whether we admit it or not, everybody thinks that they can write. And why I say admit it or not, right? Everybody kind of thinks, well, I got a keyboard. I got two hands. I wrote an email this morning. How hard can it be? And people will actively say the thing that's hilarious to me and also tragic is people who will tell you, oh, I'm just not a writer. You know, like, oh, I, I'm so glad, you know, you're working on this because I'm just not a writer. And they'll say that in our first meeting. And then I'll send a draft and suddenly these people are writer. opinions. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly they're a grand master of copy because out of nowhere, it's like, well, I don't like this word choice or, oh, but what about this headline that, that I thought up, right? I think on some level, even if we say out loud, I'm not a writer or, you know, like writing is hard, some part of us still underestimates chronically how difficult it is. I think the other thing, you know, we can blame, you know, it's popular to blame the client. A lot of freelancers, a lot of consultants get all uppity because, well, they just don't respect the process and blah, blah. But copywriters have done a terrible job of educating people on what that process actually looks like. We haven't done a good job of showing people what goes in to that headline, what goes in to that landing page, because 
when you treat your relationship with a customer like, okay, pay X bucks, get X amount of pages done, well, you're setting yourself up for a bad time because in their mind, it's like, well, I paid X amount of money and, and the only deliverable coming out the other end is a page or an email or whatever. That's why when I go into relationships and when I talk to clients and when I'm vetting clients and when they're vetting me, I spend more time talking about how we're going to arrive at the copy, how we're going to get to the point that we can confidently write something. I get the whole team where I can involved in, here's what we found, here's what we're learning, here's why we're looking at this, so that they can see for themselves and appreciate that it's not about Don drapering it and locking yourself in an office and drinking whiskey until inspiration hits. That doesn't help. There is creativity to this, but it's an analytical craft too. And so, yes, you know, I think people just don't see that because it's not something you think about. When we call it research, it sounds like, you know, nerd work done alone in a basement, not a super valuable part of a process. But copywriters themselves have to work harder to educate and to show people how we do what we do. It comes from both sides. You know what I mean? Well, for the audience, I think if you can take away anything from from Joel and kind of like who he is, the thing that sets him apart really is that mindset of copy isn't just about guesswork. It's about data also. It's about making educated guesses. And so I wonder as the people that are listening to this are likely B2B leaders that are wanting to improve their copy. What are the mediocre B2B companies doing in copywriting right now? What is the absolute, you should avoid doing this, what most people are doing, but is totally failing? You know, the first thing, and it ties into what we were just talking about, so many B2B companies are so focused on design. They'll design an entire website before they have even thought of what the message on that site's going to be. We're attracted to shiny objects and pretty pictures. Even huge companies, one of the worst things you can do and I still see happening all the time is, okay, yeah, we, we've got the site designed, so can you just plunk the copy in? And it's kind of like, yeah, we've, we've designed the covers of the book, so could you just kind of fill in that empty space in between? It's sort of important. People don't think about it that way. So my biggest pet peeve, I still come up against it. I get it. You know, with B2B, things don't move quickly until they do. But if you're not prioritizing copy early on, then you're making a huge mistake. If you're waiting until the bones are there to, to, you know, if you're treating design like the bones, if you're waiting until the thing's designed to bring copy into it, man, you've, you've really dropped the ball. So that's really frustrating. I think the other thing is, especially in B2B, there's this real hesitation to do anything that doesn't feel familiar and safe. We see all kinds of recycled copy and I can rattle off lines and I bet you can think of 10 sites you've seen this phrase on this week. So let's just do that. So we take the oh, time to fun. get to know our customers. Oh yeah. Every about, site has that. In how about this capacity, one, Joel? Right. How about this uh, one? 10 X your business we use tomorrow. A proven process. We care about our customers. So companies will play it so safe and be so afraid to say anything specific to speak to any one group is like, well, if we only talk to these people, then we'll lose everybody else. Or if we're really specific, then what about the, and, and the thing is they wind up talking to nobody at all. And that's common in small companies, big companies, mid-sized companies. 
it's like there's this boilerplate we all have in our minds that we draw lines out of. And it's like, yep, that feels comfortable. And we leave it there. And so the companies that are going to win are the companies that are going to take risks and listen to their customers and talk like their customers and do the unexpected. Because if you only play it safe, then you're playing it safe along with everybody else in your space. Well, let's talk a little bit about pushing those boundaries then. Maybe some trends that you see going forward in copywriting that might be effective, something that would kind of push the boundaries as it currently stands that might not be so familiar, but that you'd be willing to try for your own site, for example. Yeah. So I can't talk about who the client is, but like one of the things that I'm trying right now with a company in a space that you would not expect. So they're in a security space, online securities. That's what we'll say. We're breaking the fourth wall. There's this like unspoken relationship between us and a site where it's like, yeah, we're going to say the businessy things. And, you know, if, if you're signing up for a demo, then the headline's going to be, you know, requested demo. But what if that page said something like, finally, a demo that won't bore you to tears? Or what if we just said the thing everybody wishes somebody would call out? Like, you know, you don't want to talk to sales, so why not talk to this person instead? Or, hey, US-based support because talking to someone you can't understand sucks, things like that, right? Like what if you were so brazen as to just speak the unspoken thing? And I'm seeing that more and more. I mean, there's there's people who are really good at it. One of the people that I admire for her ability to, to wield humor in this way to say the unspoken thing is Leanna Patch. Uh, she's a, a conversion copywriter. She's kind of branded herself in the humor space. Not a one-trick pony, but I think her experience in things like improv and her experience in things like humor, there's a boldness and an ability to kind of like, it's almost like comedians that do, uh, you know, it's lifestyle commentary where they just say the thing and everyone in the audience laughs because they've all had that thought before, but no one's ever said it out loud. So I'm seeing more and more companies being willing to try that and to break convention and to kind of surprise people you know, with copy that that is so to the point and so like what nobody else is saying that people take action because they're like, yeah, that the, these people get me. They're, they're saying the thing that nobody else is, is willing to say, but everybody's thinking. Yeah. And I think Joel too, what we found, right? Like we, we do a ton of like, instead of requesting a demo, we'll pitch a demo video and we'll gate it. So it's like, watch, you know, less than five minutes, no need to schedule, only reach out if you're qualified, really taking the idea of there's just this like psychological, just nightmare associated with hopping on bad demos like legitimately like people hate (laughs) demos like demos suck like usually it's boilerplate junk that's not relevant to you they don't truly understand your pain point you have to go 45 minutes to get to price at the end which is all you really wanted right like there's this attitude in this nature of people who aren't quite able it's just so easy to say contact dust or request demo and i don't know where that came from but it's such a consistent thing so it's cool to see someone like yourself fighting it. Now, I did a little bit of research preparing for this, Joel, and you said back in the day that you should save at least three months before freelancing and really kind of going out on your own. Do you still believe that you need to have at least three months of kind of capital saved up or do you think it's more or less? Kind of what's your stance on that? So I was talking to freelancers and and talking to people who are thinking about freelancing, talking to people thinking about going out on their own, starting a business. And the reason I said that and where that came from is especially in copy, but I think it's it's come to a lot of niches, people just pull the ripcord like, I'm doing it, I'm going for it. And sometimes you don't have a choice, right? Like if you get fired from your job or laid off or health circumstances, whatever, and you're, you're thrust into it, 
you don't have the novelty. But if you've got a day job and if you've got, you know, steady work, get excited about going out on your own and maybe start picking up projects on the side. But not having financial stability can put you on a hamster wheel that's incredibly hard to get off. So when you're picking up like chumpy gig work because you need to eat and if your entire profile is full of this chumpy gig work. Yeah, you can't say no to the wrong clients, right? Like you, you're just kind of stuck, right? To a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, there's a very real power struggle. And, and this sounds like it's it's us versus them, but it's not really. But there is a power dynamic between you, the consultant, and the client. When you look at the really successful people, and when you look at the freelancers who are doing really well, and when you look at the consultants who do really well, or the agencies who do really well, they've found a way to shift that dynamic. They've gone from being this like employee mindset where the client's going to come in, tell you what to do, tell you exactly how to do it, tell you what they're willing to pay. They shift the conversation away from that to, well, here's the level I'm on. And if you want to be on this level, here's what it's going to take. And here's how we're going to do it. And it's a subtle difference, but it makes all the difference in the world. But it's hard to do that when you don't have the financial means to say no, when you don't have the financial means to be confident. And so do yourself a favor, have that cushion so that you have the power of no and you have the power to to choose because otherwise you'll get in this situation where you're forced to take stuff and that's really hard to escape once you're there. I'd notice that you keep using the word no a lot. <laughs> You've mentioned your focus is or, or your your what you're saying yes to this year was focus but also saying no. So I want to know in terms of copywriting as it were where does um negativity fit in there? Specifically we talked about pushing the boundaries is there any instance where negativity might actually be something that we can use in copywriting or sarcasm, things like that, that are unexpected that we don't typically see in copywriting? Is there a place for that? So the thing I'll say about sarcasm, international brands, you got to you got to be so, so careful. And I can say this because I'm a I'm German, you know, heritage, but like, for example, Germany, sarcasm doesn't exist there, really. Like, it's not something they know. So if you put something out there sarcastically, often they'll take it literally. I think negativity, it can exist. It, it really, you have to be cautious about does it fit in your brand and are you using it tactfully? So for example, if you look at say Josh Garfalo, he's a, he's a fellow copywriter. If you look at his landing page and he is very clear and it, it ties back to something you were saying earlier, uh, Garrett, it, it, he's very clear about who's a fit and who's not. He doesn't pull punches on who's not a fit. You know, like he doesn't molly coddle you and, oh, maybe this might be the case. He's just like, either you're in or you're not. And when it comes to decision time, so let's say you're doing a launch, you know, you're launching a new product or you're launching a new course. When it comes to the point of decision, being very definitive, being maybe even negative about who's in, who's out, who should do this, who should not do this, encouraging people, weirdly enough, there was a study done that found that when you told somebody that they were free to refuse an offer, they were more likely to take the offer. When you tell people they've got the option to say no, when you're definitive about like, eh, you know, this, this might not be for you, that's when you've, you can really close the deal. 
So I think there's room to be negative when it comes to you have to put a, a plant a, a flag. The other place is when you're taking a stand against something and in doing so you're communicating a value that the right people it's going to hit home with. So another example of this, you know, you look at uh, obviously well, a lot of people look at what Nike did with the Kaepernick kind of campaign as a positive thing. Some people look at it as a negative. There is a lot of positive and negative feelings surrounding that. But when you plant a flag, when you stand for something, when you take a bold stance on an issue, and in SEO that might be taking a stand against the, the whole mentality that you know an agency just adds another tab to their menu on their website, and now that's a service they offer magically. And, and they've never done it before, but now they've got a page for it. When you take a bold stance, that can be polarizing. You can do it in a positive way. It can be perceived negatively. You can take a negative angle, but you can use negativity to kind of attract people who share your negative view on a value, on a subject, on whatever it might be. But you do have to be very confident if you're going to approach things through a negative lens. You got to be real sure that ideal customers are going to respond positively to that stance. If you're not sure, there are times where playing it safe does actually make sense. The copy hackers, I think does that really well. Like when you want to guest post, like for copy hackers, they tell you, here's, here's exactly what we won't accept. Like essentially scaring people away. Right. But the right person's like, Oh, I got this. This is a challenge. I could write a piece of content. That's good enough for that blog. I know exactly what they want. Right. And so I think there definitely is a use case to appeal to your ideal customer persona by, you know, I call it self-identification. In other words, like writing copy and developing brands where this is just my take on copy, Joel. And, you know, I could be completely wrong. I'm not, I'm no copywriting expert. I, I enjoy, I think, and I think it's an art and a science, but I always believe that clarity and appealing to your ideal customer persona. So when they see it, they go, oh my gosh, finally, like I've been looking for that. I think that's a powerful place to use your copy is to be so clear to your ideal customer persona and be so confident in your total addressable market and the size of what you're going after and the economics of what you're trying to accomplish with your business, with your positioning, with your product line, that that's a position of power. You know what I mean? Totally. I mean, if we look at even for directive, right? If we look at your homepage and the statement that we make there, you deserve more. That's not just something creative. We kind of huddled around a boardroom table and thought, oh, this sounds nice in talking to your audience and in looking at the landscape and what we're quietly doing there is appealing to a frustration. There are companies who know they deserve more. And now when the right people come in and they see that message, that's what we're shooting for is that finally, right? And it calls back to what we were talking about earlier, trying to say the unspoken thing and put it out there plainly. So I think one thing too And this also ties back to something we mentioned earlier is you can't do that unless you have a process for getting to know the customer. You can't be effective like that if you're not doing the research, if you don't know how to build a research campaign for copy, if you're not pressing into that. That doesn't just happen. But that's what people don't understand because another agency is going to look at your homepage and go, Oh yeah, we can do a creative line like that. Uh, guys, let's, let's get together. And, and their homepage, you know, two weeks from now is going to say, you deserve the best. And it's like, where did that come from? Like, is that going to work for your audience? Is that a claim that is in the back of their mind? No, you just took something, tweaked it up because now it sounds good. It's comfortable and, and put it out there. You have no process. And, and you I came up with that spot. 
when you came Not up with that too, Joel, right? Like by seeing you watched a whole proposal here and you were like, okay, I, like I think when you saw, okay, that's all of that's for free. Like you spend how much time like giving them every, like, and I think that's where you were just like, okay, that makes sense. And like for us, when we drop the ball, cause we're not perfect, it looks really bad. Like you can't just say things like that and try to be the best and hold yourself to that standard, drop the ball. And people are just like, cool. You kind of get like you, when you start saying bold things with your copy, you also have to be ready to back it up and eat the crap when you don't, because that's also a very real thing too, right? Totally. Where that comes back to bike companies all the time, you would not believe how many companies I talk to and internally they have this much of, oh, we're a service brand. We really take care of our customers. And then you go look at their reviews and none of that is reflected in reality. They don't even respond to negative reviews. I mean, you can't put messages. You can't say, oh, we're going to be the, the Zappos of our industry. If that's your goal, then be the Zappos of your industry. But you can't say you're that and not be that. You're going to get eaten alive when it comes to people evaluating it. And so you can put attractive messages out there. You can like send conversions through the ceiling in the short term. But if you can't back that up, man, your revenue number is going to look great for a bit and horrible in the months to come. I think that speaks to the importance of being genuine in your copywriting. I mean, am I, am I right with like, Yo, you're with, spot on, with yeah. directive, for example, if we make claims about not even, I mean, we can back everything up, but also if we just make claims about things that we never even have discussed before, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And there's people like, I always kind of see like, there's kind of like these like low key, like snubs are like, Oh, like I know people like see our website and they're like, well, how do you come up with those stats? How do you even prove that? Like we had to build our own data QC platform that looks at every one of our clients and we can see every one of our clients data points in SQL, which goes into Sysense. And you can actually like see the numbers, you know, across your whole portfolio, what your average numbers are. And so the funny part I think too, is like, you have to be genuine because if you're not you're just literally somebody saying this number, right? And that the problem is we have so many people saying numbers that it's not even necessarily like some of the using numbers in your copy is actually starting to become, I think, less valuable. I mean, do you find that to be true, Joel, where number-based copy is almost losing effect because so many people are just making it up? The challenge is that what companies do so poorly is justify the numbers. If you're going to throw a big number out there, throw a big number out there, but you better have some proof for it, right? Like with case studies, people look for the metrics. But once they see the metrics, then they want to know how. And if you can't fill them in on the how, then you're really going to struggle. To some degree, right, the, the lizard part of our brains, it's always going to respond. There's, there's levers that from today until 100 years from now, we're always going to be able to pull. The way that we pull them might be different, and we'll develop skepticisms and heuristics. There's always going to be some new new way to tap into that. So when it comes to numbers, I think numbers is one thing. I think there's still there's still a lot of leverage in those as long as you support them. But like one of the things that's really getting written off fast is if you go through 10 different plumbers' websites and they all say best plumber in town based on what, right? Like where does that come from? We're, we're skeptical and we have more access to information and we can – we can inform our own choices in different and better ways. So again, you, that comes back to being genuine, whatever you're going to claim, whatever you're going to write, whatever you're going to put out there. And that's why people ask me sometimes, because I've written lots of agency sites, all these agencies, they all do SEO, they all do PPC, you know, they all do CRO, whatever it might be. How do you find unique messaging 
each of them because it's all the same thing, same service, yada, yada. There's something unique though. My job is to get into the veins of the people in that company and find what separates them, find their message, find the way that they do things that no one else does them. And if, if you're just hiring a generic copywriter off the street, yeah, they're going to give you headlines like the boilerplate that you see on every other site because they're not really taking the time to understand, to look at your audience, to get your process. And that's why we wanted to and insisted on, you know, we wanted to listen to how you actually pitch and propose because no one else is going to do that like you. And there's something in there that I knew there'd be something in there we could pull out. No, I love that. And, you know, I have my last question here, Joel. And um, this is actually going to be a recurring segment. But uh, I did a little research, okay? And I found your first tweet. Do you know what your first tweet was? Do you remember it, Joel? Oh, gosh. It's, Be prepared. Uh, it's probably something embarrassing like no, no, no. internet. Okay, so I went back to March of 2010. And I found you tweeted out a tiny URL. The tiny URL still exists, by the way. And it redirected to YouTube to the social media guru video. Do you remember that? No. <laughs> this is literally, yeah, this is like nine years ago. And it was this whole video about how anybody can kind of claim to be a guru. And I thought it was such an enlightening thing because I feel like you take such a hard stance against claiming to know something without actually having the authority, expertise, process to back it up. And so it was really kind of cool seeing how like that tweet from your very first time is still such a part of your character to today. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I didn't tweet about my lunch. <laughs> on, you know, on that point, though, and I do, this is something I am passionate about, and I do want to talk about real quick in that, like, one of the things that I'm seeing in my own industry, but it's not unique to my industry, but there are people who, they take Joanna Weeb's course or Mastermind or whatever, and they take what they learn there, and do they go apply it? Do they earn their stripes? Do they actually win battles in the field? Do they come up against adversity? Do they get client wins? No. They repackage it, add in some woo-woo crap, and now they're an expert. And they they sell these courses for 3000 4000 5000 And I think the thing that really bothers me, we have such a culture right now that like everyone can be an expert and you should be teaching what you know. And, and like, I agree, like you should be teaching what you know, you should be sharing. There's a reason I go on LinkedIn and, and I share things, but when I'm sharing things, it's stuff that I've actually used. And so many people want to play the role of a thought leader. They want to play the role of the guru. There's this attractiveness to having a following and a big list and there's money to be made and selling knowledge but so much knowledge is not earned now. It's not stuff they've actually used. And I hear horror stories. There's people in the copywriting world, and I don't mean to be crass, but literally there's someone in the copy world who held a session on sales calls and her advice to her listeners was to breathe through their vagina on a sales call because that was going to make them more powerful as they went through. Like that is just patently bad advice. There's nothing of substance there. It's and not even physically possible. Paid, I mean, for me especially. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it is wild. There, there's just these people coming into it where it's all hype and all packaging and all bluster, and they've never had to apply it or earn it or do anything with it. 
and it drives me crazy. And I, I'm cautious about the way I talk about this because I don't want people to think that I'm the gatekeeper that like, Oh, only Joel can decide if you're worthy to teach or not. But I'd encourage anyone in any field, business owners, B2B leaders, listen, there are a lot of people, they want to sell you on stuff. They want to sign your team up. They want to come in and teach. Okay, great. But look at their history and look at the work they've done. How long have they been at it? What have they failed at? What have they tried that hasn't worked? When they talk about their process, can they tie it in anything they've actually done? Not enough people ask questions. They get hit with the hype. They, they get sucked in by the bright lights and the, the nice wording. Have they done the work? That's what it comes down to is have they done the work? Find out and hire and talk to and take counsel from the people who have. I know it sounds so mundane and so simple, but I do need to reiterate that point because we're just in this weird space and time where there are so many people that, that want to be experts and project like experts and have the social proof that makes them look like experts. But when you dig down into what they've actually done, they've never done anything other than making money, teaching other people to make money, which is yeah. ridiculous. I think it's safe to say for the audience that, Joel, you are the kind of person that has actually earned his stripes, has put in the work, and that's why you are where you are today, not just by claiming, I mean, clearly by talking to you about these really in-depth things about copywriting, it's very evident that you understand it from a deep perspective because you've actually put in the work. So we are we are very thankful we were able to talk to you. This has been and can I give him a shout out? Can I give him a shout out? I would love oh, yeah. to. And we'll also give you a, a chance to talk about what you're working on too. Yes. Yeah. So we got case study buddy. Joel runs it. Awesome service uh, where he'll actually go out there and build case studies for you. If you're wondering if you need them, yes, you need them. They help like crazy. It's been huge as directives growth. Joel does an awesome job there. He also runs business casual copywriting, world-class copywriting service. We've actually paid him, used him at directive, completely helped change our pipeline. We're generating larger average order values that are more qualified. It's been a huge part. Is there anything I'm missing here, Joel? No. You know, I, I would just kind of dovetail on that and say, like, Case Study Buddy is uh, we've got a great team and we've got passing. We've handled all the stuff you're thinking, all the objections you have, like, oh, we're under NDA or, or our clients will never sign off or, oh, this will take forever or, oh, nobody's willing. We've dealt with it. That is where I've been ruthlessly focused on helping us get better. And uh, other than that, no, I think you know that I really appreciate the kind words and I'm so happy to hear that uh, you guys are seeing results with the work we did oh. together. And uh, it's really exciting to me to when, when a project goes so well and when great people get great results on the back of, of relationships like that. So that's really encouraging. Well, hey, Joel, thanks so much for being on the show. We're glad to have you and uh, have a great rest of the day. Cheers, you guys too. And now it's time to switch from a B2B mindset to P2P. That is peer-to-peer. I'm going to be interviewing people here at Directive Consulting, my peers, my colleagues, to try to find out what makes them tick, to see where they come from, what their goals are professionally, and give you an idea of what the culture is like here at Directive. It's going to be a really interesting opportunity, and maybe you'll even find people that have your exact same job title, your same position, or your same goals, or maybe they just like the same music as you. So today, I'm going to be talking to my desk buddy, Byron. Hey, Byron. Hey, guys. What's up? How you doing? I'm good. I am <laughs> He genuinely good. looks good. He, he, he's happy. I am happy. Just got done playing a game of pool. That's right. Awesome. I lost, but it's okay. <laughs> That's the least shocking thing. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I suck at pool, so it's not shocking. 
Cool. Well, uh, I've got some good good questions for you, Byron. All right, I'm ready. I want to hear your entire career story. Okay. You have 30 seconds. Go. 30 seconds. Okay, so I uh, studied and majored in marketing, uh, got a job uh, right out of college working as a marketing coordinator for a construction company. Not as fun as you think. You think it's going to be fun, but it's it's not. It, it is um, it is something else. Uh, and then did some freelancing uh, after that job ended. Um, social media is definitely uh, was my strong suit and something that I uh, focused on. But post-freelance, um, I took a job at a digital marketing agency, a very creative spot. Um, creative first, aesthetics first over data. Um, it was cool. It's it's definitely that agency life of, you know, coming in sweats, do your thing, <laughs> get out of there. Uh, worked with a lot of cool brands, a lot of name brands, um, mainly in the the street uh, world, street market stuff. So a lot of sneakerheads and a lot of brands like that. Um, and then did that did that while also doing some freelancing. I still do freelancing from time to time, just whenever I feel like it and whenever I see like a cool opportunity, but. Um, post that, I am now here at Directive Consulting. How many years in marketing? How many years? Uh, well, I did. Uh, I started off. Um, I did my freelancing social media stuff mid college, and that was about twenty fifteen, um, give or take. I don't really remember the year because you know. Uh, it was I, so I, long it ago. Was so long. I'm freaking old. You're um, so old. I'm so old. But uh, yeah, no, that started. I think around twenty fifteen. Um, from that point, I, you know, uh, had a social media account that kind of grew uh, pretty big uh, before the algorithms. Uh, I just want to point that out. Um, so it was definitely cool organic stuff. Um, but it was definitely a weird, weird time, you know, um, context. That social media account was focusing on goats. Uh, so it ranked up to like 30K, got featured on New York Times. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Um, don't do it anymore. Uh, kind of just got over goats and social media, but yeah. So ultimately, though, your dream is to have a goat farm. Uh, actually, no. 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 Oh. I know. It sounds a little... So long term, where, what are we thinking? Long term? Okay, so here's where I'm at. Moved to France. Mm. Southern France particularly. I uh, spent some time there and loved it, and it's definitely my vibe, so... Basically, I just wanted to live there, you know, wine and cheese all day, do my thing, you know? So, I don't know so what that no, is. no career. Oh, yeah, no, no. Hopefully no career. I, <laughs> somehow, I come into some good money. Nice. Um, basically, I think that's what everyone wants. Just You could sell plasma, a lot of plasma. That's, you know what? I heard there's good money in that. Yeah. Uh, currently, I'm doing bone marrow, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Big, some big goals with this guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Byron is a super cool guy. Uh, it's a pleasure working with him at Directive. Uh, ho hopefully, we'll have you back on again for another little spotlight. But yeah, this was good. Just a tiny little. Hey, little I, I am glad to be here. I am. <laughs> supporting the company. I am just honored uh, to be on this podcast <laughs> and to work alongside Blake. Uh, and I'm having fun. Thank you for listening to Yours in Marketing. I'm Blake Emmel. If you would please do us the favor of subscribing to the podcast if you found value in this and tell your friends, tell other B2B leaders, tell people that need to hear about this. If you have a website, if you 
are in marketing or out of marketing, if you just want to learn how to build your website, how to build your business online, or if you just want to learn more about interesting people in general in the B2B space, please subscribe to this podcast. You definitely will get your money's worth because it's free.